Welcome to They Came From Outer Space, a radio program where we talk to filmmakers and buffs about their favorite sci-fi film and how it relates to their own work in today's wild world. I'm filmmaker Cameron Kitt, also known here on WRIR as DJ Lilas, and you're tuned in to WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Indie Radio. I am here today with my friend and collaborator, Sanan Davis, to discuss the 2002 film Equilibrium. Welcome to the underground. Do you know why you came? Yes. They trained you your whole life to fight these kind of odds. What can I do? Thanks for having me. Sanan, thank you for coming on in the midst of Corona. (laughs) It gives me something else to do. Uh, You know. Wow, I can't. I feel so honored the way you said it like that. It just sounds, <laughs> sounds so good. <laughs> I, I will say a note to anyone listening: Sanan and I are recording independently from our homes using a third-party app. So I'm going to read a little bit of an intro for those of you who don't know Sanan Davis. Let me just fill you in on this. Sanan's a Richmond-based photojournalist, documentarian, photographer, and occasional DP in his own words. Like many film and photo creatives, he seems to derive energy from doing about 50 projects a year, maybe more like 100 or 150. He's always pushing new concepts for his shoots, including, he told me recently, using a fish tank in a pool to make some very striking underwater shots. Uh, He shoots portraits, music videos, narrative and documentary film, and even the news. You may have seen his handiwork behind the camera as a news photographer on CBS 6. He recently co-produced, shot, and edited a series of short documentaries called Beautiful RVA on Urban Community Gardens. That's very sweet. But I know him uh, as a member of the WIR 48-hour film crew, Face for Radio. And as an assistant DP, he was a big part of why our film negative space took home four awards in 2018, uh, including Best Cinematography. And most recently, the film that you shot, Self-Help, got into RIF, Richmond International Film Fest. So... Uh, you should really check out his website, sanondigital.com, S-E-N-O-N, digital. It's pretty jealousy-inducing. And if you want to see what these portraits look like, it's dopio.co at Insta. It's D-O-P-P-I-O.co. Did I miss anything? Uh, no, that was the greatest way anybody's ever introduced me to anything before. I Sanon, you do so much. <laughs> like, does it ever get tiring? Easily. My uh, my family definitely kind of gets mm. frustrated with how much I run around. Uh, mm. My mom kind of attributes me to my father in that regard, where I never seem to stop moving. Uh, is there anyone else in your family who's in film or video, or is it just you? Uh, just me. Um, my dad yeah. is kind of a cinema buff, but otherwise I'm the only one that's really into it. Um, yeah. My sisters, who are both at UVA right now, they're into architecture and urban design, urban planning. So hmm. I'm a little bit uh on the other side of the spectrum. What was your first camera camera? Like when did you start shooting? My first camera camera, um I can't remember the first one I ever shot on because that was back when I was fifteen. I used to work for a local theater company called Center Stage, which is now known as the Dominion Energy Theater, I believe. Uh-huh. And I worked for the public, it was like a public radio station within that place. And mm. they also did a lot of other like small documentary work around center stage. And I think the biggest thing that I ever did there was I live streamed a play for, I think it was a Christmas Carol. And I shot the entire thing, me and two other students there. 
Oh, oh man. Did you ever see, I think they used to have the Nutcracker there too with the Richmond Ballet. Did you ever shoot that? I never got a chance to shoot that. Oh, so, so good. That would have well, been really fun. So you've been doing it for a while, is what I'm hearing. Yeah, it's been it's been a while, um, a little bit off and on, but I've kind of always felt like it was where I wanted to be. It's a hmm. really funny story. Um, I'm gonna kind of keep it brief. Where the my mentor, my very first mentor, came to my high school, just kind of fishing to see if people wanted to from my high school wanted to be a part of that center stage program, and I very unenthusiastically agreed. And I specifically told him, he never let me forget it, that I'm not really interested in this, but I'll try just to see where it goes. <laughs> cut cut forward to a decade later when you're on your Buddha board with your handheld uh, camera on a um, rig and skating through Shaco Bottom, shooting a film as if it's like what you've been doing your whole life. So, did, you, did, you ever tell him, did you tell him thank you? Yes. All the time. Okay. I haven't seen, well, I haven't seen him in a while. I would actually love to reconnect with him. Right now, he actually works for PBS. So, mm. as far as I know. All right. Well, thank you, random dude who told Sanand to do photography. <laughs> All right. Well, so, so we're talking about this movie, Equilibrium, which by its name might not be very familiar to a lot of people, but if you see the poster and some images, you probably would recognize it. Sanand, why did you choose this movie? So, for when you approached me about this project, I kind of racked my brain a little bit to figure out what kind of movie I wanted to talk about. Something that wasn't so obvious, but also something that had, you know, that was a little bit more, I guess, out there. Mm-hmm. Like, my father, again, was a movie buff, and he was mm-hmm. really into sci-fi movies, like, big into that. And Praise. so I remember when I was a kid, he showed me this movie, Equilibrium. And it really flew over my head at the time, but the most striking thing about it was the fact that there were guys doing like kung fu with guns, and <laughs> I just—it was striking, so to say the least. Yeah, they literally strike you with a gun. Literally. <laughs> so fast forward a few years later, to you know, well, several years later to when I'm actually adult, and I tried checking the movie out again, and I just felt like, man, this there's a lot more to this. So, especially now that I'm looking at things like cinematography, I'm looking at things like, you know, the grading or the yes. way the the lighting is or how they yes. set these things up. So, and I have a, quite a bit of things to talk about in regards to that. Oh, um, I'm so happy about it. <laughs> and when you approached me about this, I just figured, you know what? I think this will be the movie, especially. Yeah. yeah, I think it'll be fitting. Well, I'm really glad you you asked for it to be revisited and i think people of richmond and and beyond if you're listening this is a movie you definitely do need to go rewatch. it's on netflix so what else are you gonna do really like go watch it but if if you if you're not convinced yet uh i'm going this this you know podcast will definitely have spoilers but the focus of discussion is on craft as well as content studies show a little bit of light spoilage can actually increase your enjoyment factor in watching a film however if you really don't want to have any spoilers you should probably stop listening to the radio or this podcast now. Go watch it and come back. You can find us on Mixcloud by searching They Came From Outer Space Mixcloud. So I'm going to read a really quick synopsis, and then we're going to talk about all those great things that Sanan just mentioned, grading, cinematography, and even some fun facts about Christian Bale. Libria, I congratulate you. At last, peace reigns in the heart of man. 
At last, war is but a word whose meaning fades from our understanding. At last, we are whole. Preston, give yourself entirely without incident. No, not without incident. by Dimension Films, Equilibrium is a post-apocalyptic totalitarian morality play told in the form of an action film. It was written and directed by Kurt Wimmer, who despite being utterly gorgeous has never acted. I don't get that. Um, The story is set in a world following World War III where a fascist regime in the land of Libria keeps the peace by suppressing human emotions through a drug called Prosium II. We follow Christian Bale as John Preston, a grammaton cleric, which is a highly ranked enforcement officer charged with killing anyone labeled a sense offender, who is someone who is essentially experiencing emotion. Although the regime of Libria, helmed by Big Brother, aka Father, describes itself as a peaceful utopia, that peace comes at the hand of highly trained martial artists toting guns, and after accidentally missing a dose, Preston begins to experience emotions for the first time. This makes him question his morality and moderate his actions while attempting to remain undetected by the suspicious society in which he lives. After falling in love, he aids the resistance movement using his gun caught on martial arts and subverts the establishment and, spoiler alert, gets a puppy. Whew. Did I miss anything? (laughs) It's a lot. It's a lot. So let's get into it. Um, What do you love about this movie? Well, first things first, I am a big sucker for just high-octane action um, in a lot of my sci-fi movies. Sometimes, like, I feel like it could be a little distracting to the overall theme, but that's usually when I'm, like, really invested in the themes of the movie. Not saying that I'm not invested in this. I very much am. However, once again, back when I was a kid, the biggest striking thing for me was this guy striking people with guns, um, both literally and with, like, the gun itself. So, um, that in itself, what is like the draw, um, like you come for that and you stay for just what you like the rest of you stay for the themes, stay for the vibes, you stay for the, you know, the emotion that you get out of it. Funnily enough. Yeah. It's funny. Tay Diggs in an interview said the reason he was attracted to the script was because it was exciting and full of action, but the action was coupled the entire time with this high level of intelligence in the script this you know it's it's really uh i would say twilight zone 1984 level it's really asking a lot of deep questions it's kind of like hits on all the the cylinders that a sci-fi movie should but you're right like the action is fabulous and it was done for pretty low budget you know like i was really impressed by what he was able to achieve yeah it's phenomenal just how much stuff you can get done with with a limited amount of money like a lot of the money, you know, a lot of these big major budget films that you see could be accomplished with way less and still get mm-hmm. the overall points across. Um, mm-hmm. And one thing that I thought was interesting that I saw somewhere else, but I just kind of like took it and like realized, no, that you have a point there was how 
nothing in the movie really came across as like what's the word I'm looking for? Uh, outdated. Like it didn't really feel oh. as though there was like you, you have like some sci-fi movies where they'll have like phones, but it'll be really just it'll age poorly because now we have like these smartphones in a time where everything's still the same. Like you have flying cars and people still be using pagers or like, you know, yes, very like analog phones. That's a really good point. I think the design, I I need to look up who the production designer was because the design of the movie is really brutalist, right? So like if you're in a, if you're living in a regime that completely suppresses emotion to the point where um, Emily Watson's character, Mary O'Brien, they break into her house. She's a sense offender. The one who Christian falls in love with. The fact, the thing that struck me is like the fact that there was an ornate carving around her mirror, right? Like even just an ornate gold carving is considered illegal. So in that world, there's absolutely no ornate colors. There's no, there's no design really. Everything is really clean. And I think that's probably what helps it live it, it, it really effectively as any time, right? Because the cars look kind of 80s. Yeah. I don't know if you noticed that, right? Like the cars look a little weird. Um, but everything yeah. else looks like it could just kind of be out of time. I mean, people still kind of set up their houses to that degree. You can look at a couple of videos, like you look at tiny houses or things like that, and you mm-hmm. can still see like that very like sharp, very minimalistic design in very many movies. Mm-hmm. Um, and it still was relevant even back then. Like if you look at another one of Christian Bale's movies, American Psycho, you look at his apartment in that movie, and it looks like something straight out of Equilibrium. I never, you know, sans all the art that he has in his house. So you know that that movie is the reason he got cast in this movie, right? I wasn't aware of that, but yes. I could totally see that. I could so, honestly totally see that because the entire time I was watching that, I was thinking, "Man, I'm getting strong Patrick Bateman vibes." Like in the like in the beginning, just like exactly. from his face, just the way he was like his visage. Exactly. Hold on. What year did American Psycho? Okay, so American Psycho came out in the year 2000, which is just two years Mm -hmm. before this movie. And for those of you who aren't aware, it's about a psychopath, uh, Doi, who's a rich, uh, I guess he's he's like a stockbroker, stock trader, um, like futures trader, venture capitalist kind of guy. Um, and it, yeah, I think it's clear he, so nobody else even tried out for the role because as soon as Kurt Wimmer saw American Psycho, he's like, that's it. That's, we're only doing Christian Bale. And to be quite honest, it was a very good choice because he just kills it in this movie. <laughs> the acting is so good. Like the ability to show not just emotion, but the suppression of emotion on your face is such a, a trick and challenge. And so obviously he had worked his way into showing, Hey, he can actually show that he's a psychopath, right? You to be hacking somebody up with a hatchet while laughing, right? Like the scariness, but in this movie, it's kind of the opposite of that is that, you know, in, in the moments that you're supposed to show the most pain, he he's completely stone faced. Right. And then we show the very slow, gradual growth of his emotional life over the course of like what, three or four days. <laughs> so I thought he's amazing. Like, um, but yeah, so tell me what you thought about his character. So first things first, let's talk about the fact that this man is able to create these characters and, and jump into these roles all mm-hmm. while continuing to adopt just like oh, to, I won't say adopt, you know, Americanized version, I guess, of his dialect. But <laughs> the man has like a strong like English accent. Like he has a strong accent and you would never be able to tell. It took me forever to act like a while ago to actually realize, wait a minute, wait, this guy is an American? Dude, and the like, funniest thing to me, there's other people in the movie with British accents. Like, 
and Mary O'Brien, the woman who's his love interest, is also British, and she has an American accent. So I was really confused by that. I mean, it was I guess it was just a choice by the director to make him American, make him more more port, you know, potable, I guess. But yeah, he's so good. I, I can see that. No idea. Like yeah, like you would have no idea. Like between that and American Psycho and anything else that he's done, like he just able to just cut that off very easily. And I've always found that is just interesting for people to be able to do that. I've never been able to really understand what an American accent sounds like until you hear it from somebody who speaks ordinarily in a different type of dialect. Yeah. So um, on another note, as far as like just his performance, just seeing him, his ability to react to what he's able to get into, his ability to emote, it has always been kind of nuts to me mm-hmm. um, or lack thereof in the beginning of the movie, especially when you put him in uh, comparison to Sean Bean's character, uh, Patriot. Uh, uh. Just like in the early beginning of the movie, you see like you're able to see him being at his most calm, like his most like just mm-hmm. straightforward while Sean Bean is kind of like, you can tell like he's keeping things on the, on the low. And to see that reverse, like, later on in the movie when um, Christian Bale has to, like, hold that back. And you can tell he's doing, he's trying his hardest. He's trying his hardest, but he's letting that come out. And the fact that him as an actor is able to, like, go through those complex feelings of I'm acting myself trying not to have emotions. I'm acting myself acting like I still am emotionless somewhat complex character because he goes through the entire range of human emotion in the course of the film so i was betting the whole movie on finding a guy that could do that well i actually tried not to have an act with that emotion obviously it's a decision i had to make going in but this is a story telling about a world where people aren't allowed to feel how do you do it how do you make a movie of that and i knew i could obviously say okay you're all zombies but it wouldn't have been an interesting movie to watch if your weapon's low please use mine it's a very challenging role. And it, I mean, this movie just wouldn't work without the cast that it had, right? Like the, right. the casting, I think, was perfect. <clears throat> Sean Bean, for those of you who don't know, is Ned Stark and Boromir. And he is infamous in the film world for dying on screen more often than any other actor of his day. He's died 22 times on screen. And spoiler alert, he dies pretty early in this movie. <laughs> um, he's shot by his partner after reading him a Keats, uh, or was it Yeats? I think it's a Yeats poem um, that Yeats. makes him have feelings. And that Yeats poem made me have feelings. The walk, tread lightly for you, tread upon my dreams was so beautiful. Um, and just like those, those, that was a very intelligent choice, I think, to have those kinds of references. It's just, yeah, having having like the amount of artwork and the different types of just content in the piece to kind of just show like these are the things that affect people deeply was, you know, was magnificent. Uh, I think it was fun that they had the Mona Lisa and then they came out with, uh, I think, Beethoven Symphony. Yes. Later on. Yeah. That's one of, so there's, there's a couple, there's two acting moments that stand out to me. So in the very beginning of the movie, we, we have a flashback to Christian Bale seeing his wife being taken away by the by the feeling police and essentially having to kind of keep a lid on it and having no emotion. This is a lawful entry. We have a warrant for your wife's arrest. Remember me. And then there's a scene kind of present day in the film where he finds a bunker of, of 
sense objects that are essentially the forbidden illegal paraphernalia that need to be burned. And he is no longer taking the drug, right? He's off the drug. And as soon as that Beethoven piece hits, he just just dissolves into tears. And that is one of the most powerful moments because it, it happens like it was so quick and it's just so beautiful. So, so I have a question for you. So there's two films that you've shot that I've worked on with you our 48-hour film team film, so Negative Space and Self-Help, where our main characters have very few, if any, speaking lines on screen, right? So Self-Help with Janelle, you know, her character Kendra never speaks on camera. Um, But you have to show her inner life through her face. So as the cinematographer, how did you deal with that? Um, For me, I'm always a big fan of, like, the way we did it in Self-Help, having, like, one part of the screen dedicated to that actor or that actress's face, um, whether it's like a close up on their face, like some uh, you know, cinematographers do, or just having them like you know, kind of like a portrait style. Whereas like the background is acting on behind, it's like a double message, like you're seeing it at the same time as them. I thought that was really cool. Um, alternatively, it's just you know, looking at people's eyes, like just being able to have a person's face as a prominent element in the frame um that really speaks to me that really helps me like realize like all right well now i like can see like what they're going through now i see like all that it gives them a chance to shine as a actor or actress um i'm trying to think as far as in in the movie it also like another way that you can go about it is just cuts like cutting from them to scene to them to scene like the energy with the way you cut the scene can definitely help with that does that answer your question yeah those those are two really good answers so as close as you can get right because the closer the face the more likely you are to like really recognize the emotions and 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 empathize i imagine right is it hard to convince people to get close-ups like i don't remember the i don't remember on um negative space but like do you did you do you have to push for that to be like no we really need to be able to see this um or do you do you feel like you could just get in there with a high with like a nice zoom (laughs) um for me like it it would depend on the scene but one thing i really like is and i use this for whenever i'm doing photojournalism work is being a little bit further away and zooming in real close getting a nice like critical crisp focus on somebody's Mm -hmm. face Mm-hmm. Um, and really kind of just like sucking all of like that emotion up that they're displaying. Like one thing that like, it makes me feel really grimy. I will say that, but also like from, a ethical standpoint, but from a filmmaker, from a cre- content creator standpoint is like, you couldn't ask for anything better is when you're on a scene of something and somebody is starting to really get emotional about whatever it is. It could be something tragic. It could be something, uh, like very empowering it has been a variety of things that i've been to and they start crying or they start really showing like heavy emotion and if you have like when you have like them filling up the screen is just that is like that's gold like you have to get that shot because if you don't and if it doesn't take precedence or anything else that you could get and if you don't let it breathe it really takes away from the moment mm-hmm. It's something, Talk it's about, about letting that grimy feeling. Grieve. It's so true. But so like, as far why, as a grimy, what, what feels bad about that? Yeah. <laughs> so as far as a grimy feeling is, it 
almost exclusively relates to if I'm doing something that's more tragic, like a murder or a fire or something, and I'm just getting an interview with somebody. I already feel kind of rough interviewing someone who may be going through the worst day of their life. I feel even worse when I'm like sticking a camera in their face or like oh for the, the news. I'm sorry, I thought face. you were talking yeah. about yeah. Okay, that's so true, right? But you're also sharing their yeah. emotion with the rest of the Richmond metro area to help people connect. I can totally understand how that would feel bad. Of like. I was going to just quickly mention, like, I think the difference between photojournalism and cinema, though, for me, photojournalism is a little bit more of a voyeuristic standpoint, whereas, like, um, cinema is definitely, like, crafted. Like, every element is completely just manu- is manufactured. So when that becomes something that just happens naturally, it just th- it completely becomes gold. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's definitely a difference between those two elements. Um, they're similar over there completely different you're listening to they came from outer space here on wirlp 97.3 fm richmond indie radio i am cameron kitt i'm here with sanan davis and we are talking about the 2002 film equilibrium Librians, there is a disease in the heart of man its symptom is rage its symptom is war the disease is human emotion. Okay, I really want to get into the craft of cinematography because there is some amazing cinematography to talk about in this film. The use of light and the use of the sets and the placement of the camera really helped drive all the themes home. But before we get into that and we talk about Dion Beeb, I would love if you could just break down one of your favorite shots that you've done of your personal work. It could be with uh, Face for Radio. It could be with something you've done at uh, CBS. And just tell me kind of how you achieved it. It could also be from your, you know, photography. Hmm. Um, I have a couple. So in the spirit of my current mentor, I, I think, do you mind? I, I have three, three that are at the top of my head. Um, one right. is a, yeah, one go is for a, it. So one is a wide, one is a very medium shot, and one is tight. So as far as like my favorite wide shots that I've ever done, it was during Negative Space. Um, It was a scene where we had Phil, who played the main character, um, as he was walking away from the warehouse that we were shooting in. He was walking towards like this train, and there was an overpass, and everything was very symmetrical. Um, And it was such like a balance between like the manufacture of this overpass and the train and the streets where the car is going by and all like the little trees and foliage that were coming up that he was walking towards. And it just, I remember like we were trying to figure out like how we wanted to end the film and Mm -hmm. that that shot right there just really like sold it for me. So I think (laughs) I remember, I think I I like jumped up and down when the train came by slowly. It was exactly what you were just talking about, about having motion in the background, right? Like to show the world going by. Sometimes you just get lucky, right? Yeah. Those are some of my favorite shots, just the luckiest shots. Um, I think for my, for a medium shot that I really like, it was, I was doing a piece on the Richmond Free Press and I was inside of the, um, of their facility and we were interviewing this one reporter and he just had 
tons of tons and tons of like newspapers just stacked like his it just looked like chaos but it was controlled chaos and just having him kind of interspersed between all these stacks of newspapers it really just is so the idea of like i've been doing like he was an old grizzled man i've been doing this for decades decades mm-hmm. and decades and you can just tell it from all these newspapers so i think that was a really uh that was a really good shot um that's on my website as well that uh piece that i did for uh, wtvr cbs6 with um rob desire and, and hit me with that www so people listening can go to look you up. So you can look that up on www.sanandigital.com. Um, that would be the best place to find it. It is going to be on the Richmond Free Press and can't miss it. It's a, one of my favorite pieces that I've done. Um, and it really kind of just like sells like the story of like how that uh, organization has been contributing to the greater Richmond area for decades. So um, I think for my last piece, the like as far as a tight shot, that that one's a little tougher. But I know one of the things I really loved was when I was working on the documentary series for the Lewis Ginner uh, Botanical Gardens, the um, urban the urban gardens, and I remember it was one shot where. Oh yeah, there we go. Um, it was one shot where I was at Martin Luther King Middle School, and I was just getting some B-roll of these two women who were working on a bunch of little uh, like boxes, little garden boxes inside the courtyard at this middle school, and I got like this one shot of one of them just hosing down like some of the some of the plants and some of the vegetables. And it was just so kind of crisp, like you could really hear just the water coming out of the hose that I just, it's so, it sold the entire piece for me. Just like that one shot became kind of like a linchpin for it for me. So, um, wow. Yeah. That was epic. Thank you. Um, can you talk about, okay. For those people who are listening, some people may know about the craft, right? The craft of cinematography and what it means. But this movie is really fascinating in terms of its shots. Can you just talk about some of your favorite shots and and how cinematically and visually um, they pertain to the story? All right, let we're going to start out right off right off top with one of the craziest shots like that I've seen in just that era of filmmaking up there with like with the intro to belly if you haven't heard that movie it's a great movie dmx and Nas, i won't get, jump into that but it's called belly and the intro is amazing but this particular uh scene was the very intro where christian bale jumps into a dark room full of resistance fighters and his uh, like the sweepers the other guards that are with him shoot out all the lights and it's pitch black and you hear the resistance kind of like whispering to each other like where is he? Where is he? Did you see him? Do you hear him? Like, shut up. Shut up. Be quiet. Be quiet. Hey, don't hear us. Be quiet. And then you just, the only light in the scene after like 10 seconds is just muzzle flash. And it's nonstop, just consistent shooting. And all you see is kind of like the highlights of people kind of dropping, of Christian Bale himself shooting. And it's like this weird kind of just like mystical way that he's moving. Um, 
And for a while, I was trying to figure out, like, all right, how did they get that shot where he's, like, it's almost, like, weird, like, dissolve cuts from him going from one pose and switching over to another pose. And it's it's just, Cameron, you know what I'm talking about. You know the scene that I'm talking about. Yes, it's, it's. You know, for filmmakers, it's kind of—I don't want to say orgasmic, but it's—it's it's a strobe light <laughs> effect, right? Have you, if you've ever been to a, a like a, a rave or a dance party where the strobe light is the only light, the motion between dance moves is only seen through the flashes, right? So each like the, the guy's falling backwards. It's really, I yeah, I thought that part was really interesting. So I don't know what that part means, though, right? It's like I guess it's building his character up as kind of godlike in his power, right? His ability right. to use. That he specially taught this special martial art that is exactly where to move your body to avoid gunfire, right? Like right. Like the whole point of like the art of that was for you to have like a type of presence within a fight to where you could take on multiple assailants and they'll never be able to hit you, but you'll be able to hit all of them while still repositioning yourself. So the idea is that the light is the gun going off, right? So right. how do you think they shot that? Um, I mean, one thing that I would do for just any type of gunshots is flash. Like I would use flashes. Um, I can't speak for how they did it because I've been watching this movie on Netflix, so I'm not super sure what the behind the scenes to this um are to that extent. But yeah, you could do it with strobe lights. You could do it with flashes. You could do a variety of things. You do a quick strobe hit of somebody falling over. There's a couple ways that you can go about it. um fashioning that scene so the thing that really struck to me was just christian bale's movement like how he switched from one position of holding his guns to another position where the only he's not his body is not moving almost at all the only thing that is moving is his arms and it's almost like it's like a weird like shutter effect that he's doing yeah now the cinematographer dion beeb he's uh Australian dude, he he is known for. He won an Oscar for cinematography for Memoirs of a Geisha. He also did cinema. He was a cinematographer for Chicago Nine and the movie Collateral. And he's 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 a powerful figure, I think, in the in the effectiveness of this movie um, because you talk, you wanted to talk about color grading. Everything is black and white or or just gray, right? Everything is neutral tones except for this really amazing moment of the rainbow that he sees out the window when there's a, a I guess like water spraying, right? Like that's the first time we really see color. Um, but his, right. his his arrangement of the shots is really fascinating and I think um, it's really different from the way that The Matrix was shot and I think unfortunately this movie really gets compared unfairly to The Matrix a lot just because it came out right around the same time um, and in between Matrix and Revolutions and uh, I guess because of the, the early 2000s the, the outfits are kind of similar I think like the fact yeah. that you know wearing black and stuff but besides that and the fact that it's a post-apocalypse it does share a lot of things but I think that it's super brutalist right like the Matrix was stylized in a totally different way but their shots where their um, kind of relationship to architecture makes the people feel so small and insignificant like I think of all the scenes with Christian Bale just sprinting at like 19 miles an hour through those hallways are so beautiful <laughs> like man like I can run <laughs> but yeah I think there's some really beautiful shots would you say that's your favorite um sequence is the one with the the opening gun um shootout it's definitely one of my favorite sequences in like that film um and that's one of my favorite sequences of like 
almost any movie. Just that scene right there. Um, mm-hmm. It's just, once again, the striking. Um, another one is, and I know I'm still like hitting on the top, like the aspect of the fighting, the combat scenes. Um, but when he is it's around the end where he's dressed in all white and he's going down this kind of a beige corridor, not beige, um, this like, you know, this corridor that's like contrasting heavily with all like the gloomy blue and gray architecture on his way to go see the vice chair, the vice councilman. And he has to fight like a whole squad of these, of these sweeper guys who are all dressed in black. These guys have been dressed in black the entire, uh, entire time. Yeah. Christian Bale is now in white with a little bit of a strike, like a little bit of a blood strike, like from when he got hit in the face earlier by Tay Diggs. And he's untouchable the entire time. He's untouchable for the rest of the movie. He gets hit like once in the entire movie. Um, and I remember somewhere else that I read about the director saying like he wasn't really a fan of the idea of him having like not being physically immortal, like him like actually having like getting injured or getting hit by somebody. He's like, we all know that the guy's going to make it. We all know that he's going to win. Why waste our time? I thought that was interesting. Um, mm. But as far as like back to the cinematography, just like the color, of, just like the color work, I'm always a big fan of seeing how yeah. characters, how people will contrast like the main character with all of these goons. Like you can't really characterize these other individuals because they were all kind of the same. But the, but in that sense, they're also the same as all of the people who live within Libria. Right, like I think some of my favorite scenes besides right. the gunfights are the ones where Christian Bale is just walking through this society. Right, there's there's a great scene where he you, you kind of like enter the city and everyone kind of walks up this huge staircase all together up to work. And there's right. you know scenes where people are arrayed, all of their outfits, their heads are bowed, everyone wears slick back hair. Right, it's it's a fascist totalitarian regime. Everyone is kind of isolated into uh, devoid of individuality. Right, when you're robbed of emotion you're robbed of anything else. So anything that stands out, right? I mean, why would you be allowed to wear color right. in a world where emotion is banned? So I thought that was really powerful because everything has to be swept completely dry. Watching this, the impact of the idea of a world where you couldn't show emotion is so terrifying. You know, this concept of, of, of inability. And, and when he's walking up the staircase, that you see a woman, he, he's, he's finally off the drug and he's looking around to see if anyone else is, is also feeling, right? And you see a woman right. with her hand out of her glove up the railing. And my mom goes, don't touch that railing, there's coronavirus. <laughs> but yeah, like I thought, I thought that, I think what was powerful about it is it's, it's stated, but it only really hits you when it's shown, right? Like right. the fact that they were going to shoot that puppy and Christian Bale has to pretend not to actually care about the puppy is so good. Right? Like, it's the cutest puppy in the whole world. <laughs> I just knew they were, like, trying to, like, grab people with that. It's like, all right, you're going to hang this puppy in front of us and, like, put a gun to it? Are you going to do that to us? Of course he is. Right? Like, he's he, – right. I think what's really good is, like, it, watching this makes you realize how how essential emotion is to every human interaction. That even removing emotion from people doesn't really remove emotion from people. And I thought that was something super I mean, yeah. I mean, when they got when they came and took his wife, and they're just like, "Oh yeah, no, your wife's been feeling. We're gonna get her out of here." He is clearly disturbed by this. Like he's yeah. not just like, "Oh okay, all right, see you guys." Yeah. He 
it clearly bothers him. I mean, these guys broke into his house to come kidnap his wife, and his first instinct is to fly across a room and steal their guns. Yeah, and break one guy's arm in a really uh, amazing way. But so Kurt Wimmer said that that was a lot of pushback he got from people is, you know, how do I, how far do I take this with actors? I wanted their personalities to come out. I think at the end of the day, the audience has to either give it to you or not give it to you. They can demand that they be zombies and have to sit through it, or they can accept the fact that really what this drug does is cut off the extreme highs and the extreme lows. And the essential person is still left behind and enjoy the movie. They know who did it. We can't have everyone being robotic. And I thought Tate Diggs was really, I think this is like one of my favorite roles with him I've ever seen him in. Because he plays very subtle character, but you still know his personality, right? Even though they're not showing sure. emotion, he still, he still kind of smiles in some moments. He's still very smug. Right? Like his character is like the smug tattletale, I think. But he's scary too at the same time. And it's my job to know what you're thinking. What drew me, what attracted me to the script was the fact that it was exciting. What with all the action sequences, coupled with uh, the intelligence of the script, it's almost like a moral play. So, Sanan, thematically, there's a lot of themes to me. There's like some religious themes, right? Like he's almost untouchable. And to me, the biggest theme besides, you know, the power of emotion is is fascism. Like, did you notice all the Nazi symbols? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> this is definitely a super fascist society. I mean, every we need everybody to be the same and we need everybody to follow what we say or Complete else order. we're going to murder you like immediately. Yeah, I love that. No, they got to be shot. He's like, we need to take them back for trial. He's like, no, no, no. <laughs> we're going to shoot them. No, nah, these guys die. And I think in a world where, you know, it's 2020, we are facing a society worldwide where there's been a resurgence of nationalism all over the world, like Russia, India, Brazil, and even here, right? There's this return to this, these roots. One interview or one YouTuber I, I saw do a review of this movie, though, likened the idea of prosium to being like political correctness. And it just goes to show that, you know, if you make something thematic, people can interpret it in different ways because he was looking at it like the way that the left would say that everyone has to be politically correct and that using prosium is like self-inflicting political correctness, which I totally didn't associate with this at all, you know? So Yeah, um, that's a little weird to me. Like, but, you that, know. Like, just that comparison is a little weird to me. But, you know, everybody can read things, read things differently. So, I mean, um, what, what do you think yeah. this movie means? Like, what does it mean to you? Well, to me, this movie was like it really it really made me feel like what like all right, this is a little tough for me, um, personally, uh, but it kind of relates to relationships for me. So and yeah, I'm I'm gonna get slightly personal. Um, one thing that I always had problems with in the past when it came to relationships was kind of like showing emotion and feeling because I always kind of had like this fear that the moment that I showed any of that emotion immediately, like the relationship was over because I'd been burned like that before and seeing kind of like mm -hmm. an entire society built around that same concept is just nuts to me. The fact mm -hmm. that literally it's be emotionless and detached or die. Mm -hmm. And that's, that's been, that was relationships for me for, a long while because the minute I started showing like no I actually kind of like you I enjoy being around your company I want to you know experience life with you and look at art and show you like these music artists that I really vibe with now that relationship is over 
So mm. that's just one interpretation that you could take it with. But it's I think really that's a really interesting. interesting way to look at it. Yeah. But I mean, um, the, end, the end takeaway is that if you like, okay, the guy who plays the vice, um, what is his name? Uh, the guy who plays DuPont, DuPont, vice, vice, his, Roy his, DuPont. uh, and yeah, vice, uh, councilman. He, in an interview said, emotions are essential to humanity, but by suppressing them, of course, we become very dangerous creatures to ourselves. Right. I know, I know quite, a, I mean, that's what leads to, you know, a lot of toxic culture when it comes to relationships is a lot of people hide themselves so much that they become incapable of feeling anymore and there are consequences to that um when in reality no nah, people are feeling like that person that you think is going to judge you or kill or like kill you for feeling is also feeling a type of way so mm. all of this is false it's all because it's all a facade and mm-hmm. it's all just a big game because at the end of the day these things are not going anywhere like the fact that you have to continuously um suppress yourself that's not a state of nature and things will always revert back to its natural form when you're trying to, you know, suppress it. Yeah. So, well said. I mean, you could look at that now. You could look at that now with like people being outside less, the environment is coming back to life. Explain. Like all these things that we spent all the so all these headlines that you see about like, you know, dolphins coming back to like the oceans, like the uh-huh. Italian rivers now that nobody's like uh, driving boats through the rivers, like the rivers are starting to get their color back. Um, there's less trash everywhere. Like nature is making a resurgence. You look at an abandoned building in like a for a forested area, and you're gonna see decay from the building. Like that's falling apart. But you're gonna see more plant growth. You're gonna see overgrowth. You're gonna see you know all this foliage coming back up. Like you can only get in the way of nature, but for so long, and you have to continuously work at getting in the way of nature. Does that make sense, or is that a little heady? No, that makes total sense, right? Like, so yeah. emotion emotion is our natural state and trying to suppress our natural state is unnatural. But the way, you know, fascism is and like regimes are always uh, substantiated on, well, we're preventing war, right? Like the hypocrisy of the movie is they're preventing war by having ultraviolence. Like there was a war. There was a complete war. It was like the war on emotion and that war didn't last. So the real question is to your your ecological analogy, uh, are we gonna lose this war against the earth or not? Right? <laughs> like is the earth gonna win or are we? I I sadly I don't know which one I hope for, um, to be quite honest. Yeah. I mean that's a whole other discussion in itself. But there's there's a lot of folly in my opinion in trying to pre win a war. It's it's mm. It's a lot of when when you try to work proactively to prevent certain things, it typically doesn't work out the same way that you may think it is. Um, because what you may believe to be is the case may not always actually be the case. So you may believe, oh, if we have emotion, then we're just going to kill each other and you know blow each other up in war. In war, well, that may not actually happen. So, and you trying to administer this cure prematurely is going to be worse than the disease. Oof, deep stuff coming out. Um, you are listening to They Came From Outer Space. I'm Cameron Pitt, joined here by 
cinematographer, filmmaker, and documentarian and photographer Sanan Davis. We're talking about the 2002 film Equilibrium starring Christian Bale. I've heard the most disturbing rumor. Rumor, sir. A rumor maintaining that one of the cleric is actually attempting to contact the resistance. Then you know what I'm going to do now. Okay, time for some fun facts. I have a segment that I've started called I Can't Believe the Studio Did That, which is recurring on this show because it turns out every single film has had the studio meddle in a negative way. <laughs> yep, that's <laughs> the right. I mean, and so I was really trying to figure this out, right? After rewatching this film, I was just, I was kind of heartbroken that it got lost, right? Like it got lost in the shuffle. Now, of course, Kurt Wimmer had kind of grabbed a cult following online after it came out and it grew. But Miramax picked this movie up. It was originally Dimension. And the film was not given a wide release on purpose because it had already run into profit as a result of overseas sales. And Miramax, quote, didn't want to risk turning a moneymaker into a loss. Now, that just boggles my mind, right? Because this movie, I think, is like a perfect example of why I love science fiction, right? Is these kind of stories allow us to think deeply about what we're doing and our choices, right? Like, it's a thought experiment. Right? Okay, what if we restricted right. emotion? Right, right. Um, but the fact that Miramax is like, let's just pause. <laughs> like, it's so like, mind-blowing. Um, have you ever had a project that you've worked on that got stunted in some way that was against your control and it just kind of drives you nuts? Oh, always. Always. That is that is my... And I'm going, I'm going to be a little light here just because like this is my job at, in general, but one of the um one of the caveats for working in local news is sometimes you have to kill your baby um mm-hmm. in regards to you may be covering a story that's really just compelling like the most compelling content that you've like seen in a long time because a lot of the time you'll be running into breaking news or you know just covering something that just needs to be covered but for specifically for the shift that I work where my day is not only short, but it's also kind of bisected to where I spend half of my day facilitating a live shot for a morning show that I have zero control over. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other half of the day is spent chasing a story and trying to turn that around over the course of like four to five, four to five hours at maximum um, for the 12 o'clock show. And there have been many occasions where I've really wanted to do like a really good job on the story. Um, oh, I have a perfect example. So there was this one instance where we got sent out to a local county where a nonprofit and a bank, I believe, were coming up, were creating a playground for a term. I think he was a terminally ill boy, or I think he may have had cancer. He not may not necessarily have been terminally ill, but he was very ill. Um, and they were trying to make a playset for the family and they were all just working on the backyard and just go like going at it, trying to do their best to create this experience for this family that was just going through some of like the worst time that they had ever gone through. And mm-hmm. the inherent issue was that they were not going to be done until possibly around one o'clock. And we were trying to turn the story around for the noon show. And so both me and my reporter decided that we were going to take it upon our own time to really put this, give the story the justice that justice that it deserves. And so we created kind of a lower 
um, a lower version of it, like a very like small form version of it for to turn around for the noon show. And then we really like made it into like a small piece, a small, like very well done piece for the later shows. And the fact that we were able to do that um, was was rare. Because typically when I'm in that situation, there is there is no that. I have to turn it around for the noon show and whatever I have, the general idea is we're making air, not art. Oh, so you managed to make um, it happen. And I can, we managed to make it happen for a later show. So we were uh, able to still cover the story. But cool. it just goes to show one of those other examples where it could be rough. Another quicker yeah. example that I have was um, in a further off county, it was a situation where somebody had sprayed racist graffiti all over a historically African-American military uh, subdivision. Mm. And because of the logistics of the circumstance, it was very difficult to turn that around for the noon show. And it created a very um, a less than ideal situation for creating a compelling story. And I had to stay significantly later in order to turn it around. Um, these are all best case scenarios because what what happened otherwise is that you try to work on these stories and then something else happens and you have to go to that instead and now you're left stuck with turning around two less than ideal lower quality stories because mm -hmm. your producer may want this one other thing and the really good story that you were working on is now no longer a factor um i'm blessed to work at a station that prioritizes storytelling so I have those opportunities to go back and work on those really good stories, but I know there are other stations um, where that is not an option. You, There is no overtime. There is no working past the clock or working on your own time. You go and cover what they tell you to cover and you like it. Does that answer I mean, your question? Think, yeah. I think what you, what you just described is actually like a really perfect um, example of what happens in the studio system over and over, right? And it's not necessarily purposeful to stunt the work, but inevitably things like time and production and organization or whatever the decision-making of Miramax was to not promote this movie, it, you know, at the time probably made sense to them, right? Like just like you guys having to get things out on time for certain shows. Um, but it's always wonderful when you can see a movie that was so clearly um, cared for and all the way through by a writer director the same way there are sh I'm certain there are stories like you just mentioned that you really were able to give the attention they deserved right so right. as we wrap up I have one last question for you and only like about two minutes left what do you think as a low budget filmmakers we can learn from the movie Equilibrium you can make whatever you want to make it's all about your own ingenuity and what you can get to shake um, you do not need a million, multi-million dollars to make a film because at the end of the day, you're telling a story. You can do that with your cell phone. Um, the difference money makes is it, it just increases the range of which you can help tell that story. Now you can hire more people. Now you can hire more marketing. Now you can put in, you know, different effects and spend time on this. The money is just no more than an extra resource. You, at the end of the day, you still have to have the story. You still have to have like know what you want people to take away from it. And you still have to have the drive in order to make it into something that people want to see. Um, there are certain things that are going to be a lot harder to do on a lower budget. But like I said, with enough ingenuity, you can accomplish anything. Wow. That was <laughs> perfect.
<laughs> Perfectly said. And uh, you've been listening to They Came From Outer Space. I'm Cameron Kitt. Sanan, where can people find out more about you? Um, Honestly, you can follow me on my website. I'm Right now, I've been on a little bit of a hiatus, just trying to like reconfigure myself amidst this quarantine, since I'm not really leaving the house too much, aside from doing photojournalism work. So mm-hmm. you can follow me at sanandigital.com for when I start putting out more work. Um, and you could also follow and watch CBS 6 News. You can catch them on the website at www.wtbr.com. Or you could catch us. Um, specifically, my shows are the 5 a.m. show and the 6 a.m. show, as well as the 12 p.m. show. 12 p.m. show is when I really put out my stuff. So Wow. Three shows. And and that is S-E-N-O-N digital.com. Uh, you're tuned into WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Indie Radio. We've been talking about the movie Equilibrium. Sanan, thanks for coming on. Absolutely. Thanks for having me. I'm so glad that you uh, brought me on. I'm so glad we got to talk about this. Uh, Stay tuned Thursdays, first and third Thursdays of every month at 11 a.m. for more episodes. Don't touch your face. You have survived.